Welcome to Behind the Scrubs, an original podcast series produced by UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'm Aspen Drew, the manager of Con High's Center for Rural Health, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Taylor, Con High's Director of Advising in the Office of Enrollment and Student Services. Hey, Jeff. Aspen, what's happening? Not much today. How are you? I'm great. It's cool weather outside. I love this time of year at a university. We just had commencement a few weeks ago, and it's just wonderful to see everyone graduate and yeah. move on with their lives. It's so exciting, right? And you think back and you're like, oh my gosh, I did that at one time. I know. <laughs> and so I was really thinking about this. I went to Texas Tech for my undergrad, but I had the privilege of actually eventually working in the college that I graduated from. It was one of my first jobs in higher ed. And one of my roles was I got to read everybody's names at the honors ceremony. And so I'm up there on the stage. I've got my robe on. I'm married with the dean. This is the dean that shook my hand when I graduated. But she's been there. She was there forever. Full circle. Full circle. And I'm looking out at this audience and seeing all these spectacular graduates. And I'm seeing their parents and getting to read these stories. And I look at the dean and I say, Dean, this is a wonderful idea, this ceremony honoring the best and the brightest of our graduates. I said, I wish we had this when I graduated. And she said, we did (laughs) <laughs> hey, you weren't included. So. Uh, I wasn't there. So, I think the invitation was lost in the mail. Yeah, I lost it, man. But it's, it's yeah. a bit of a problem. You know, um, I'm so but... sorry that happened to you. <sighs> Memories abound. <laughs> I marches on in higher education. Good times. So how was your holidays? Did you have a good holiday? It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. rested and back and ready to go. We love it. On to the new year and ready to rock and roll, right? Absolutely. And uh, speaking of rock and roll, we have a rock star with us today. We do. We have a real rock star. Y'all, this one's great. I'm super excited about it here. We have Dr. Aaron Carlson with us. Dr. Carlson is a clinical professor at UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation, where she's the founding director of graduate public health programs. In addition to her administrative role, she teaches public health courses in epidemiology and global health. It conducts funded research and evaluation of community-based disease prevention programs. Dr. Carlson, welcome to Behind the Scrubs. Dr. Taylor, pleasure to be here. Oh my gosh, I love it. We're already off to a wonderful start here. So we have a, a standard question we'd love to start with here to, to learn a little bit more about you. Dr. Carlson, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey in, in public health and kind of how you wound up here at UT Arlington? Absolutely. So... I don't know how far back we want to go, but so we can start with growing up in rural Nebraska. And I think my journey in public health started with my father. Growing up in farming town in Nebraska, and my father, who had been in the Navy, wanted to make sure that I grew up with an awareness of other cultures and other people and the larger world around me. And so he was very intentional and started when I was just a very tiny child. And when I was about three, he would start telling me bedtime stories and stories about people in other cultures around the world to bring that to life for me. So I would be aware and not think that life only existed in this vacuum in this small town, right? And so he would tell me about children, fictional characters that he made up, who were my age, who were kids like me, but what it was like to be a child in Japan or in India or in Mexico. And he had this bedtime story, this family he created to tell me about culture in Mexico. And that was my favorite character he created, Carlitos. And he would tell me about Carlitos and Carlitos' mother, Maria. 
and how she would make these homemade tortillas that Carlitos loved, and his father, Jose. And so we have this whole family create this world. And I said, wow, I want to know Carlitos. I want to learn about people in other cultures. And I said, how can I meet Carlitos? And so he tells three-year-old Aaron, Carlitos speaks a different language. He speaks Spanish. So you're going to have to learn Spanish to meet Carlitos. And I thought, wow, I think I want to do that. And then he always really reinforced to me, again, farming town. So we, there were migrant farm workers. And he was the only person in town who really would help. And without pay, he would, he, he always told me everybody is entitled to the best possible care and representation, regardless of ability to pay. And so he really lived that. And he said, he always told me, Aaron, there are people in this world who are just as hardworking and just as smart, who don't have the same opportunities simply by virtue of where in the world they were born. And you need to change that. And so that's where I got this idea of what I later learned in grad school. There's a term for it, social justice, and I wanted to do this. But the issue was, I'm in rural Nebraska. There's no way to learn another language other than German or Czech, right? There's no way to really learn more about the world around you as far as language and going there. It just, that wasn't, I didn't know how to make that happen necessarily. So then I went to college and said, okay, this is my chance, finally. I'm going to major in Spanish. And I'm going to learn how to communicate with people other languages. And I want to do this with the purpose of changing the world. <laughs> not knowing what that meant, not knowing what needed to be changed in the world, how to change it. But I felt there was some kind of injustice that needed to be remedied and that I needed some kind of tool to do it. And that was where we went. So that's how it started. But in those days, in those, man, I sound like such a Gen Xer. <laughs> this was just on Instagram the other day. What things Gen Xers say too frequently. In those days, there was not an undergraduate program in public health. In fact, the term public health was really not something that was known by most people. And that wasn't an option. So I remember I was getting to the point of graduation and I thought, wow, what am I going to do? How am I going to change the world with my communications degree and Spanish degree and poli-sci degree? Like, what do we do with this? And so I went to one of my communications professors and I said, hey, so you, you do all this great work in communications and law. And so I want you to tell me what I can do. Here's what I want to do. I want to do something that involves communication and health and science and policy in Spanish. And he said, Aaron, I have absolutely no idea, but I promise that if you keep looking, you'll find it. And he was right. And I kept looking and I moved abroad after college to finish my Spanish degree abroad and then to work for a company in Europe. And that was definitely where I think the journey really began towards what I'm doing now. While I was there, obviously, you meet people from all over the world. I was working with healthcare providers from all over Europe. And it was a really fantastic, interesting work. My first job out of college was in corporate Europe. So serious culture shock when I moved back to the States and took a corporate job here. <laughs> but it was most fun you could possibly have in a job was definitely what I was doing there. But it also shifts your paradigm, right? You raised in rural U.S. And so you raised with this notion of the U.S. is the best. And by the way, we have the best healthcare system in the world. And then you're abroad and you learn, wow. There's a place you can be in the world. There's other places. In fact, most other places in the world where you don't have to worry how you're going to pay for health care, where you don't have to worry about 
How are you going to get access to health care? How are you going to get health insurance if a member of your family has a chronic disease? And that was in the days, again, of pre-existing conditions. Not everybody had access to health insurance. That was certainly the case in my family as well. And so this notion that you could get good health care without worrying how are you going to pay for it, not worrying if you go bankrupt if you had a medical event, that blew the paradigm open for me. That My paradigm shifted. So a lot of things changed. And then I come back to the U.S. and three things happened. First, my paradigm had shifted. My eyes were open, so I now knew the healthcare opportunities outside of the United States. I knew what it could be if you didn't have to worry about how you were going to get healthcare. Number two, 9-11 happened right after that. And with 9-11 came a huge influx of funding for public health programs. Still not undergraduate, but graduate public health programs were now springing up. And now people were hearing the term public health. And there was public health infrastructure being built from the funds that were coming in for emergency preparedness and bioterrorism and those kinds of things. And then finally, the thing that happened was I went back to Nebraska, having been away for however many years between college and then working abroad, so six years or so, and the whole landscape had changed. And I was getting calls from people I'd grown up with saying, can you come to the courthouse and interpret? Can you come to the doctor's office and interpret? And I would say, where's your interpretation? Like, where's your interpretation stuff? What's happening? They're like, we don't have any. We can't communicate. We need help. And so what had happened that those few years that I'd been gone is we changed from literally 1% minority population in some of these small rural towns to over 50% Spanish speaking. And so the entire landscape had changed in terms of the community, in terms of services, how to access them, healthcare, and we lacked that bilingual, bicultural generation in those days. And so there became this huge need. And then there was a need for people to bridge that gap. And there was also a need to just bridge those service gaps in the community. So then I said, wow, okay, I see it now. It's coming together. And I remember the words of a friend of mine who called me at my campus job right after I graduated college on the office phone. Again, no cell phone, but okay, not to date myself. So she calls me the front desk phone of the office I worked in on campus. And she's in medical school. And she said, hey, I just found out about this thing that sounds like you. And it's called public health. And I think you should look into it because they do science and health and communication and policy. I was like, that does sound like me. So I pulled out that mental note to myself that I'd made however many years ago. And I said, huh, let me see if I can find one of these public health programs, because I think if I had that training, I could help with what's going on here now. And so I did. So I worked corporate America by day and got my master of public health degree by night. And there we go. I love it. That's amazing. I actually did not know that you were from rural. So that's exciting for me. Nebraska's geographically a lot more rural than Texas is. Texas has a high rural population, but not so much, even though we're huge, not so much geographically, so percentage-wise. But that's really neat. And I'm glad that you had that experience because I think rural healthcare, rural everything, rural healthcare, rural education, like everything is so different in rural and everybody knows everybody, right? And so it's super interesting to hear that you've had a rural experience and a broad experience. Like you just have a wealth of experiences. So in a couple of our previous podcasts, we talked a little bit about healthcare in other countries. And since you brought it up, I figured I might as well use this segue to go into before pre-COVID, you've done a lot since COVID. Of course, COVID was a public health phenomenon. I just want to ask you about what you have done abroad. Do you take students abroad? 
And how has that kind of affected you? I know that we've talked before about you've gone to Kenya, and so I know that's affected you. So I'd love to hear a little more about it. Yeah, thanks, Aspen. What happened was that once I entered academia in public health, as often happens, I think very few of us have this idea of what we're going to be when we grow up, and then we have a beeline towards that thing. I ended up, when I started academia, of course, my passion and the thing that led me to public health was access to care for recent immigrant populations, particularly Spanish-speaking immigrant populations. Now there's a lot of talk about social determinants of health and those kinds of factors and how they impact health outcomes. We weren't talking a lot about that. I should say public health was, but really the funded world, shall I say, was not talking about that. And I pretty quickly realized when I accidentally ended up in academia, (laughs) not the plan was public health practice, but I ended up in academia and by virtue of a, a wonderful department chair who said, hey, I think you'd really like this. And why don't you just give it a shot? Why don't you just teach a class? See what you think of it. And I said, you know, I'm not an academic. You know, I'm going into practice. I have no interest in that. But I need the money because I was finishing my PhD program, right? And I needed money. And so at that point, your resources are drained when you're getting to that far into graduate school. And so I said, okay. So I did it. And I fell in love with it. And the rest is history. So I found myself newly in the academic world and learned very quickly that what I was preaching in my grant applications about social determinants of health and access to care for recent immigrant populations at that time was not the hot topic getting funded. But my other hobby, which was nothing I ever expected to work in, which was infectious disease, I was fascinated by it. I loved it. It was not what I had trained in. Again, I thought it was just a fun hobby, something you read about obsessively. But that was something you could get funding in, because guess what? We're always going to need funding to fight deadly airborne diseases. So I quickly found myself in the world of infectious disease. So I learned that it actually did dovetail very much with my interest in newly arriving immigrant populations with regard to screening and early treatment for infectious diseases and and also infectious disease prevention. So I found myself in the world of infectious disease and... That really got on my stride. I really enjoyed it. I loved working with CDC and became very well funded in that area, had some great mentors, had some great opportunities. And with the world of infectious disease, you get to go places in the world that you would never get to go as a tourist. And that was one of the greatest benefits of falling into that pathway was where it takes you globally. Because when you are working in healthcare or public health globally, you see the essence of humanity wherever you find yourself going. Because you are not seeing the tourist spots. You are in the clinics. You are in the hospitals. You are in the laboratories. You are seeing people who are out there most vulnerable trying to fight to stay alive in the healthcare setting. So when you sit on the bed of a patient who is fighting tuberculosis, when you sit down with a patient who is literally trying to choke down the size of of a horse pill to fight their multidrug-resistant TB, and you see the look in their eyes knowing that, again today, just like the day before that and the day before that and the six months before that, 
they have to choke down a handful of horse pills that are going to make them very sick to their stomach. And you look in their eyes and that you know that you want to just stop these diseases. You want to prevent people from ever having to go through this. And you also learn in talking to patients in these different settings that this idea that we have of take a pill and you get cured and you go back to life as it was before you had this disease, that doesn't exist for most people who contract a serious infectious disease because life as you knew it will never be the same because now there is some permanent degree of health loss. There is some permanent degree of disability from just having had this disease. So if you have tuberculosis, for instance, your lung capacity will probably never be the same. If you have a labor-based job, that means you're not probably going back to it. And if that is what the economy you're in is a labor-based economy, then you will no longer be able to provide for yourself and your family. So life as you know it has forever changed. So I really became very focused on prevention and measuring the costs of prevention and looking at it in both a global setting and a domestic setting. So that's where the global came in. So you just got to meet so many people from so many different places in the world. And in this very vulnerable environment of the healthcare setting, you also found yourself, you go in with these teams, you find yourself taking a hands-on crash course and learning healthcare systems in new countries. You literally find yourself getting off a plane in a community where you've and I found that it suited me. I loved it. I loved the people. I loved the work. And so a couple times a year, I would find myself getting to come off the plane in that community, in that country, in that continent where maybe I'd never been and having to learn those things. The global health work was a really important component in the infectious disease research. I can certainly feel your passion about it there. I could just listen to you talk all day and uh, intend to. So as, as a follow-up there, and I'm sure every interaction, every trip had its own particular meaning and value, and it's something you're going to take with you the rest of your life and, and teach your students. But just for the sake of our listeners today, do you have a particular story that really resonates with you, that just still sticks with you, that kind of gives you something to hold on to or that you often think about? The moment when I was in Global that changed my trajectory forever and that brought me here to the University of Texas at Arlington was we were in rural Uganda. I was there with veterinarians without borders. Yes, there are veterinarians without borders, just like there was doctors without borders. And so you're saying, what are you? You are not a vet. What are you doing with veterinarians without borders? They also do public health as it relates to humans as well. And infectious disease, there's so much overlap between animal disease and human disease by virtue of most infectious diseases at some point are zoonotic diseases. So it's really a natural work. So I was there on the human side of it, obviously, and we were doing surveillance in an area where they hadn't been able to do infectious disease surveillance, to give you a little background of what was going on here, because of a civil war that had been going on for decades. So we were one of the first teams there to do disease surveillance and learn about what some of the levels of infectious disease were in this very rural part of northern Uganda. So at night, because we saw some very intense things each day, you were in an area of the world that was one of the most impoverished in the world. People live on about 300 US dollars a year. All of the children around you were starving. That was a fact. You saw people in some of the harshest living conditions that that exist. And you had to take some moments for yourself at the end of the day so you could focus the next day on what you needed to do. So the way I did that and always do that is by taking a walk. So I had this little path just through a pasture, essentially, that I would walk through at night. 
and I was walking on that path at night, and a woman is coming towards me in this beautiful, her beautiful African fabric draped around her with a big jug of water on her head, and it occurs to me that she's about my age. And that meant that she was in late 30s, early 40s. And I realized in that moment that she only had about five years left to live. And while in my country, I was considered very young, because the life expectancy for a woman in that area of the world is 45 to 50 years old. And it just struck me what dad said about where you're born in the world and the impact that has on the opportunities available to you. And, and I thought in that moment, I can't leave here. There's so much to be done. And for such a small investment, you can do so much good here. You have to cast a lot of times into the pond to catch a fish in infectious disease in the U.S. I mean, you have to screen a lot of people before you find a positive for certain diseases. But there, we were screening and finding cases <laughs> every few minutes, and you were able to help people. And so you were able to make a big impact with a little bit of investment. And I just looked at her and I thought, I can't leave. There's so much work to be done here. How can I go back to the States? And then it occurred to me, you're looking at this wrong, Aaron. You're looking at the work that you and your team are doing right here, right now in Uganda. You're not thinking of the larger impact you have. If you go back to the U.S. and you teach other people to do this work, then you can have hundreds of people potentially doing this work rather than just you and this team. It was a real privilege to be with that team. But other than just the, the 10 of you who are here, you can potentially educate hundreds of people how to do this work and really get work done that way. And in that moment, on that walk, that evening after a particularly difficult day in Uganda, I thought, I need to change my course. I'm currently doing research, but if I teach, then I can have many more people doing this work. I want to take this mentorship that I so love in the research setting and in the health department setting, and I want to teach students how to do this work so more and more people can be here helping that woman live a longer and happier life. I love that's your reason for teaching. That like really makes me cheer up a little bit, honestly, because I think that's so special. And I don't feel like a lot of professors have that passion. So thank you for teaching here. So leading into that, so you teach here, you teach in our graduate program. So why don't you take some time and just tell us a little bit about the graduate program and what you teach? I'd love to hear a little bit about how you teach. I can tell you're passionate and students, I'm sure, can feel that too. So I'd love to hear more. I really have to give a lot of credit to the University of Texas at Arlington for the commitment they have to teaching and students. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to come here shortly within a few months of having that moment in Uganda, because that was that's really the road less traveled in the sense that in academia, you are rewarded for grants and publications. And I had that going on. And to leave that for something that is not as esteemed in academia, which is the teaching and administration, was a very unusual path to take. And so I really respect UTA for recognizing the value that academic programs have and that teaching has and supporting that. Because when I interviewed here for my current position, I said, if you want me to build a public health program, then I don't want to be tenure track. I don't want to take time away to chase grants that I could be using to build a, an academic program that benefits the students in the community. That's how I saw it. I was very fortunate that the leaders who hired me 
understood that and saw that and said, okay, if you want a non-tenure track position and you want to leave most of your research behind to focus entirely on building an academic program, we'll give you that opportunity. That's not an opportunity that you find very often in academia. So I was very fortunate that they saw the future of the program and that they valued enough giving somebody's time to build that, that they gave me that opportunity. So then at UTA, they said, hey, we have some interest in creating some graduate public health programs. And so that's where they recruited me and I came into the mix. And we started building graduate public health programs from the ground up at University of Texas at Arlington. I came here in 2016, and we've been working on that ever since. And one of the things that the president at the time wanted to do was meet the needs of the community. And our leadership continues at UTA to want to meet the needs of North Texas and the community in North Texas. And I really respect that and appreciate that. The president said, we have a need right here in Arlington for public health and for public health practitioners. And let's build that up. So we did. We started out by creating a graduate certificate in public health and then went on to build a master's degree in public health. And now we have a master's degree in public health that has two different concentrations, urban health and epidemiology. We also have a graduate certificate in public health practice and a graduate certificate on diversity and equity in public health. So what's been the biggest challenge in growing a program? The challenge at UTA was not a negative, but it was certainly a challenge in that there had never been public health before on this campus. And it's also a four-year university campus, which honestly, in my opinion, in public health, because we are so interprofessional, is a, a huge advantage. But it's very unique in the public health world. Typically, public health programs exist on medical center campuses, on health center campuses. And so to put one in the middle of a four-year university is not the norm. So there was a real challenge in just educating about what is public health. And I still do that. All of us who are faculty in the public health program still finds our regular basis just educating people about what is public health and what is the role of training public health practitioners. We had some help with um, free publicity by virtue of something you may have heard of. It was called the COVID-19 pandemic. So that certainly helped educate people about what is public health and what public health practitioners do. So it was very timely for us. We started the Master of Public Health degree in fall of 2019. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, the, the world knew about public health more than it ever wanted to know or had ever known previously. So that also helped us get the word out. But we still find ourselves explaining what public health is, that it's a very multifaceted field. There's a lot of different specialties and disciplines within public health, that it's not only infectious disease or only as often healthcare providers think that we're just the people who go to health fairs and hand out pamphlets, that actually public health has a lot to it. So there's always an opportunity for education. So I think educating was the biggest challenge. And then, of course, finding our space, finding our place and building that and teaching what is in it for others that we are interdisciplinary, that do we do work well with others, that we do leverage the talents and training of other disciplines. So I think those are some of the challenges, but UTA has helped us meet those, I think, quite well. Personally, I have a really positive view of the public health system here, and I think a lot of that is because of you and, and what you've created. Erin has won many awards and grants, so I think that you choosing to not be tenure track. I think that that makes you a unicorn in and of itself because 
ultimately, I think oftentimes people come into academia thinking like, that's what I need to do, right, to be successful in academia. And so you have obviously been more than successful in the public health program here and built it from the ground up and have really made it this just amazing program that people can come in and they feel comfortable and they feel knowledgeable about what public health is and the multiple different tracks that they can go down. And I think that's important, especially for college age students who typically have no clue what they want to do when they grow up. So I think that's really awesome. So I do want to ask you about your experience with the COVID-19 pandemic. I know that, like you said, public health is really, it became noticed by everybody in general during that pandemic. And so we've barely touched on COVID-19 in this podcast for a multitude of reasons. The main one being that every podcast for the last three, four years has really been only talking about COVID-19. But I would really love to have your perspective because you were in it. You were deep in the pandemic as uh, someone who works in public health, who is a leader in public health. And so I'd really love to get your experience and hear a little bit about what you did during that time. That was a really extraordinary opportunity for our students to learn, where our students would be able to apply in real life the skills they were learning in the classroom. What a better training ground. So students in public health were having opportunities while they were still students to do work that typically you don't have an opportunity to even apply for until you were three to five years after your master's degree. We had undergraduate students being able to do this kind of work because we were desperate for, I don't know how to say that, because there was such a need for public health from that you don't know what that's like to deal with the wide range of people that you have the opportunity to deal with in public health. And I say deal with in a positive way, okay? There's people from all different backgrounds, and it is a privilege to get to work with people both as colleagues and then also as clients or as patients from all different backgrounds. And for our students to get that real-world opportunity was priceless because you just can't simulate that. So then they knew what they were really getting into going into public health. And it's like we always try to tell them public health is about more than knowing how to calculate an odds ratio or a confidence interval or a relative risk. Public health is also about going in and talking to somebody from which you have a completely different background and finding enough common ground to build a relationship that you can get some very sensitive information from them that you need to be able to trace a disease and data you need to be able to plan for public health. And they got that. So that was the first thing with students. Students both in the community level, like I mentioned, the health department, other health organizations, but also right here in our own campus. We have a very large campus, as you all know, at University of Texas at Arlington. So you have a campus of 55 to 60,000 people, we had to have our own contact tracing team. We needed our own infrastructure to be able to trace and contain COVID-19. So that's where our public health students rose to the occasion. And so I worked with the University Health Center, and together we put together our own contact tracing team consisting of our public health students. They did a fantastic job, and they were really the ones, along with our health center here, who contained COVID-19 on our campus. So it was. I was really proud of how they stepped up and they learned on the job and they did a great job. There was a lot of fear during the pandemic and a lot of uncertainty. And so your students, I could not have gotten that experience from a classroom. So I love that. Thank you. So going along with that, and fear comes up a lot around here. It's an interesting 
idea. It's an interesting topic. But fear, pandemic, public health, public education, social media. How does social media impact people's perception of public health or the way that you do your job in educating your students? That was the game changer. We were unprepared when the pandemic hit for the level of influence that social media would have on people's decision-making during that time. And think that obviously as a public health community, as a field, we've learned from that. We're continuing to learn from it. Honestly, the way that social media impacted COVID, I think cost us a lot more lives than it saved us. The level of misinformation and disinformation, and yes, those are two different things, that impacted people's behaviors and decisions and opinions during COVID is something that I really wish my students hadn't had to learn. But I will say that I feel much better about the future of public health and the next pandemic. And mark my words, there will be another. I feel much better knowing that our students had that very intense training ground where they learned firsthand the impact that social has on people's decision making during an infectious disease outbreak. And that will stay with them. And they have the knowledge firsthand, both in their, they are native users of social media, which their instructors, most of us are not. Most of us are old enough that we had to learn it. They have an inherent and innate knowledge of it, shall we say. And then they also knew how it impacted us during a very difficult time. So I feel that in the future, we are in very good hands with this generation addressing how social media impacts decisions that are made by the public during an infectious disease outbreak. And I think give them a, a few more years in the field and we will see a lot of changes come about in how we utilize social to educate about public health. Do you know of any positive public health-oriented social media pages that people should follow recommended? I love that question because what I always teach my students is that you need to have an opinion. That opinion, however, needs to be based on facts. And you may come to a very different opinion based on the same set of facts as someone else looking at that same set of facts. That's okay. The issue is when you come to an opinion that is not based on facts, but is based on somebody else's opinion. So we need to be careful about the sources that we use to educate ourselves as scientists and to make sure that those sources are based on hard data and not someone else's opinion. So some sites that I would recommend that truly are based on facts and are not based on others' opinions that are not politically driven are Kaiser Family Foundation, kff.org. It's wonderful to follow KFF because they are not funded by any particular political persuasion. Their entire existence is simply to educate people about access to healthcare, the status in the country to give solid data and facts that inform our decisions and our allocation of resources with regard to that. That's it. No political agenda. So Kaiser Family Foundation is a wonderful organization. Follow the Commonwealth Fund is another one that looks at access to care. And that's their only skin in the game is to inform us using good data about access to health care. So those are ones I would follow. Obviously, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That kind of leads me into talking a little bit about advocacy. We've talked a good bit about advocacy here on this podcast, mainly because it is important to advocate in higher education, right? We're teaching the next generation. We should also be advocating for what we're teaching, right? I'm curious as to, do you do any kind of advocacy with the things that you teach your students? Obviously, you're very well versed on public health and what's happening and what's current. 
And so have you done any advocacy? Do you currently do any advocacy? And how would you suggest to our listeners that they can get involved and they can advocate? Certainly, back when I was young and naive and idealistic and wanted to change the world, I really looked at things from a macro level. And I wanted training and health policy to change policy so we could change things from the macro level and learn how to do that kind of advocacy where you go to the legislature and you present your testimony, you present your opinion. And I was really fortunate to get to do some of those things early in my career in rural health, as a matter of fact. But what time brings us is perspective and also a true sense of what our path is and what it is that we contribute. And by going down that path, what I learned, where my talents lay, what I can contribute is actually on the micro level. And it's one person at a time, one student at a time. And that's where I think I can make the biggest impact. And it's also where, frankly, I just feel the most joy. And my version of advocacy has changed from let's take this data set and let's present its findings to the legislative body and let's hope that a vote goes our way. And it changed from that to let's take this student into a shelter for people experiencing homelessness or into a food pantry for people who are experiencing food insecurity or to our federally qualified health center that provides access to all people regardless of ability to pay or documentation status and let them experience firsthand. That is my version of advocacy now is I volunteer in our community regularly with all of the populations I just mentioned and I bring students into that. And so that's how I want them to learn that firsthand experience, because I can have them read all of the case studies there is, and I can lecture about it and show slides. But until a student has that conversation with somebody who is experiencing housing insecurity or food insecurity or has been personally impacted by infectious disease, they don't truly realize the meaning behind what they're doing. And that meaning fuels passion. And that passion fuels the desire to get further education and to really find your place in the field. So that's how advocacy looks to me currently. And I believe that service learning is an important part of that. So partnering with local organizations and bringing students into those organizations to do meaningful work. We're not talking about pulling out staples for papers or making copies or making coffee. Not that is not all needed. It is. But we like to see students actively working in the front line with clients and getting that experience. And so that's part of classes I teach. And I think that's a really important part of the community because once students have that experience, I know from doing pre-post surveys about this. And in that pre-post data collection, I learned that students after having that experience are significantly more likely to say, I think there is a role for me in my community. I think there is something that I offer in advocating for my community, volunteering in my community. And they also are significantly more likely to say, plan to volunteer in my community in the future once they know that they can do it. So that's what I think my current work is. But I really, I try to stay very active in our local community. I've been on the board of our federally qualified health center. I've had I think just about every officer position in that over the last decade or so. So I'm really still very passionate about access to care for immigrant populations, particularly Spanish-speaking immigrant populations. And my work now, instead of writing grants for that or running projects for that, is very much in our local community and how I give my time towards those efforts. Thank you for giving us a different definition of advocacy, because I think 
oftentimes we forget that there can be multiple types of advocacy. It doesn't necessarily mean, like you said, going to the legislature and talking to them and trying to fight for a bill to get passed when in reality that doesn't always work great. And so thank you for ever teaching our students. And I'm going to pass it along to Jeff for his infamous final question. Sure. So I, I would like to say we all start out wanting to change the world yeah. at a young age. Most folks do, I assume. Mm-hmm. You, you alluded twice during our conversation saying back when I thought I could. I feel like you probably have more than you realize and it's good just to keep that in mind. It may be on a smaller level, but I'm feeling that there's some change emanating from you and through you. So it's pretty awesome. Thank you. Now, to keep this going, I want to give you some power now. I'm going to give you a magic wand, Dr. Carlson. And I would like to know what change or what implementation would you like to see in the field of public health? If you had a, the ability to just wave this magic wand and make it happen immediately, what would you like to see? Here's what I would like to see. Thanks for the question, Jeff. And this is not only for public health, but this has implications beyond public health. But to go back to something that Neil deGrasse Tyson said, when I had the, the privilege of being in the audience when he spoke in Dallas last year, and something that Neil deGrasse Tyson said is that our future depends on the scientific literacy of the American electorate. And My magic wand would be for scientific literacy for all people, meaning that people understand the value of science, that they can discern factual scientific information from opinion. And by virtue of doing that, you erase a lot of the evils in the world. You erase how misinformation and disinformation poorly informs people and the negative implications and ripple effect that has on the spread of disease and social ills. You also improve lives for so many people who are experiencing discrimination, because now people understand that so many things are just simply a biological component of how we are designed. And I hope that it would increase both social understanding as well as scientific understanding. So my magic wand, glitter, sparkles, (laughs) all array falling around here. And as the glitter and sparkles fall, we have increased scientific literacy wherever they fall. That would be my first dream. My second dream is that the glitter from the magical unicorn of wands that we are waving gently falls down on each one of my public health students, undergrad and graduate. And it's like a line that I leave my global health class with at the end of each semester. And I tell them this. I tell them that some people do, in fact, grow up to change the world in the classic way we think of it. They become Mahatma Gandhi. They become Dr. King. President Obama, they become Oprah Winfrey, you name it, but they are that person that has this mass impact and changes things on a macro level. But most of us, in fact, make changes on the micro level. And I want everyone, as that glitter from the wand gently falls on their faces, to realize that the way we change the world is by, during the course of our public health careers, making life, making health better for one person. And if every single one of us does that, then we will have, by virtue of that, in fact, changed the world. But we have to own that. We have to know that it is 
our charge, that we can feel empowered to work genuinely with others, remembering our shared humanity, keeping that at the forefront, and working together so everybody's life and health is just a little bit better than it was before we came in with our public health game. And that is, in fact, how we will change the world. Spoken like a true teacher. <laughs> yeah, can I have you record a wake-up message for me? And like, Rodeo is so, like, it's so positive and so upbeat. That would make me want to get out of bed. And a wake-up message or you want some chai? So but we're a little bit of both. Deliver to your bedside. <laughs> Aspen, if you I am open to both, okay? Positive reinforcement and chai. Really just a mixture of the two would be great. Dr. Carlson, thanks for being on Behind the Scrubs. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Aspen and Jeff. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. So Aspen, what did you think about all that? Yeah, as I, we're just, I'm thankful to have this podcast, right? Because we hear all these like different experiences that people get to have and I think my favorite part was her telling her experiences of, of how she became a teacher, why she became a teacher and her reasoning. I think it's really important to have passionate teachers, especially in higher education, because you really are helping these students forge away. Like you you are a big influence in their life. And so I think it's really important to have professors that are really passionate about what they do and put that passion into their students, right? Yeah, I'm ready to sign up for an MPH program now. Let's go. Yeah, travel. and we've got a good one here at ETA, so. Yeah, that's great. Just so people know, if you're interested in doing a Madison Public Health program here at UT Arlington, just feel free to send an email to publichealth at uta.edu, and they'll connect you with Dr. Carlson or someone else that can talk to you. Absolutely. What was your favorite part, Doug? Just the whole thing. I love stories, and Dr. Carlson has had a lot of wonderful stories to share, and this is great. Like, if we could have, again, I think I say this every episode, but we could have gone another hour or two yeah, and not really scratch the surface of everything I wanted to hear. Yeah. She's a really good storyteller. I really enjoyed the magic wand question. I really enjoyed the sparkles and the unicorn and the glare. That's that was a great. And the sound effect. Yeah. I mean, it was wonderful. Absolutely. I didn't, really, we didn't know we needed a Foley artist, <laughs> but here we are. That's right. I love it. Thank you to everybody for listening to our season two finale of Behind the Scrubs. Stay tuned for more information about season three and beyond. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To keep up with UT Arlington College of Nursing and Health Innovation and its various programs, visit us online or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at UTA Con High. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye, y'all.